We made some comments last time on the main thrust of this book, saying that the key note was holiness. And the spiritual principles that are found in Leviticus certainly apply to Christians in the church today. It is true that many of the divers' ordinances and laws were given for the right order of Israel as a society, as a nation, developing. But nonetheless, this teaching is very much applicable to ourselves. You look at the key verses of Leviticus, and you'll find that they have to do with holiness. Uh, For example, in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, The scripture records these words. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. And that means set yourselves apart. And ye shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy. For I am holy. And you'll see a repetition of this same thought in chapter 19 and verse 2. Moses was told, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This absolutely applies to the New Testament church. Because the Apostle Peter took up those words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. He actually says there, it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I've made the point that the book of Leviticus is quoted or referred to over 100 times in the New Testament. It's certainly profitable for us today. Now, when we talk about a holy God and we talk about holiness, what do we mean? What is holiness? Contrary to what some people might think, and it certainly seems to be the thrust of many sermons and some religious songs, the emphasis in the Bible is not first and foremost on the love of God. It is the holiness of God. You can't talk about God's love without talking about his holiness. I quoted the American theologian Augustus H. Strong, who said, Love is central in God, but holiness is central in love. So while God is love, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You can't have true love without holiness. And God's perfect law teaches us that there's no hope for the sinner without mercy. This is true. Without the love of God, there is no hope. But the law of God has not been set aside. It has been satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Him and we trust in Him, we find that He is our holiness before God. But that doesn't mean that we don't have imparted holiness. I was having a discussion with my wife the other day about this. How that there seems to be a disconnect among many who profess the Lord's name between the idea that we're justified by Christ 
But that doesn't have any effect upon our daily lives in sanctification. Yes, they want to talk a lot about what they are in Christ. But the problem is that that's not showing up on a daily basis in the way that they live. So you have to wonder sometimes, are they in Christ? Because those who are in Christ are new creatures. And while they're not perfect in this life, far from it, they're not sinless, they certainly should sin less. The Lord makes changes in His people, here and now. There is imputed righteousness. There's also imparted righteousness in the gospel, and that's sanctification. Spurgeon said, when the Lord comes to bless His people, He comes with blessings in both hands. In one hand, He blesses them with the blessing of justification. In the other hand, He blesses them with the blessing of sanctification. And the two go together. Christ is our justifier, but He's also our sanctifier. In other words, He not only makes us appear before God as holy, but He actually, by His Spirit, makes us holy. Causes us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But when we talk about holiness, when we talk about holiness, God's holiness... It's not simply the absence of defilement. It's not just a negative thing, that he's not this or he's not that. God's holiness is positive. It is active. God's perfect nature is at work in accomplishing God's perfect will. Now the Hebrew word for holy that Moses used in the book of Leviticus actually means that which is set apart and marked off, or that which is different. There's a very good definition of it. So when the Lord says, be ye holy, he means be set apart. He means be marked off. He means be different. Oh, how that goes against the grain with many today. They don't want to be different. They want to be just like the world. They want to look like the world. They want to sound like the world. They want to listen to the world's music. They want to dress like the world. The world is in their hearts. The Bible teaches us that holiness is vital. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And you look at the book of Leviticus and find that anything that God said was holy, it had to be treated differently from the common things of life. For example, he talked about the Holy Sabbath. You know what that means? It means it's set apart. It means that it's marked off. It means that it's different. Now let me say this to you. If your Sunday is not different from your Saturday or your Monday, there's a problem. There is a huge problem if your Sunday is not different than Saturday or Monday. Because it is a different day. It's a day set apart. It's a day that's particularly set apart for the Lord. Some years ago, I had a person say to me, but sure isn't every day the Lord's day? I said, frankly, uh, no, it isn't. Oh, really? Well, it belongs to the Lord, yes. In that sense, yes, it is the Lord's. But it's not the Lord's day. It's not His special day. Sabbath, there's one day in seven that that is spoken of in Scripture. 
The Ten Commandments make it very clear. There is a holy Sabbath. Even the tithe that the people brought was called holy. Leviticus 27 verse 30. Maybe you've never thought of that, but what you give to the Lord's work is a holy thing. It's set apart. It's set apart from the rest of your income because it's for God. Now we have an English word holy that comes from an old English word halig, which means to be whole or to be healthy. Isn't that an interesting thought? To be holy is to be healthy. You think about the health of your body. Well, what health is to your body, holiness is to your soul. And the related English word sanctify comes, as I pointed out last week, from a Latin word sanctus, which means consecrated, sacred, or blameless. So when the Lord talks here about being sanctified, being set apart as he does there in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. The word is related to holiness, and it, ta- it really means to be sacred or to be consecrated, to be set apart. And whenever we use the word sanctification, in theology it is to describe the process of growing as a Christian to become more like Christ. That's what our sanctification is. And I return to what I said earlier. The Lord not only justifies you and makes you appear holy before God, but He daily makes you to become more like Christ as you grow in His grace. So the message of Leviticus is something that we need to consider. The book, of course, is concerned with instructions for worship. Worship that was intended... The instructions were for the guidance of the Israelite priests. Now if you compare Leviticus with Deuteronomy, the last of the five books, it's a book that's intended not for the guidance of the priests, but for the guidance of the people. But when you look at Leviticus, it's called Leviticus, because the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. So this is teaching specifically to guide the priests. And therefore the book of Leviticus is almost entirely composed of legislation, laws, things that were to be done and not done. The only history that you will find in the book of Leviticus, unlike Genesis and Exodus, is in chapters 8 through 10, and a bit there in chapter 24 from verse 10 to verse 23. That's the only history in Leviticus. It's mostly legislation now it should be noted that Leviticus is referred to in numerous scriptures of the New Testament I already made the point that there are references to it or from it or certainly allusions to Leviticus over 100 times in the New Testament I could give you many examples I'll just give you a few in Matthew chapter 4 or sorry Matthew chapter 8 Matthew chapter 8 verse 4 The Bible says that Jesus was speaking to the leper, whose leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So if you consult Leviticus, especially chapter 13 and onwards, you'll see that there were laws for the leper. And when a leper was going to be pronounced clean, he had to go and see the priest. And the various, various things that were connected with that <clears throat> were mentioned by the Lord here. Uh, the, the leper was to offer a gift that Moses commanded. Again, you'll see in chapter 12 of Matthew and verse 4, that the Lord Jesus referred to a law concerning showbread, that it wasn't to be eaten, that it was only for the priests. And of course this is taken from the book of Leviticus. In chapter 15 of Matthew, and verse number 4, it says, For God commanded, saying, Honour thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Again, that's taken from Leviticus. There was capital punishment for disobeying your parents. Wow. be a lot of young people missing today if that were to be enacted. Matthew 19, verse 19. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You saw the quotation this morning. We read it earlier. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's taken from Leviticus. And again, there are other References, Matthew 22, 39, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Even in the book of Hebrews, in chapters 9 and 10, there are multiple references to the Levitical system. In James chapter 2, verse 8, and again, as we pointed out, 1 Peter 1, 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, the message of this book of Leviticus concentrated on worship and it followed on from the emphasis in Exodus which was on redemption Exodus deals with redemption chapters 1 through 12 but it also deals with instruction Exodus 20 through to chapter 40 you have the law of God the ten commandments and various other laws that are drawn from that and then you have the setting up of the tabernacle and how that worship was to be conducted this is all in the book of Exodus. So it is preparatory to Leviticus. You look at the book of Exodus and read it and you'll see that it tells you about the making of the tabernacle from chapter 25 onwards. God told Moses, thou shalt make me, let them make me a sanctuary. And again, you think of that word sanctuary, it makes us think of it, the word sanctified, doesn't it? It was a holy place. It was a place of worship, the sanctuary. And the Lord said that was to be made in a particular way and he gave all the instructions for the building of that tabernacle. You can read it, chapter 25 through to chapter 40 of Exodus. Exodus tells us about the tabernacle, but Leviticus tells us how it was to be employed. How was the tabernacle to be used in worship? That's what Leviticus is all about. And so we can say that there is, first of all, in the message of Leviticus, the order of worship. The order of worship. Now go back to Exodus chapter 25. As I say, this is preparatory for what we read in Leviticus. And what God said, particularly of the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, but was really true of the whole structure, is found in Exodus 25, verse 22. 
Notice carefully, God says, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. God would dwell in that tabernacle, and right there, as they worshipped, God would meet with them. Now, God meets with us today through Jesus Christ. He is pictured here in the tabernacle under the various pieces of furniture, not least the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. But notice this, there I will meet with thee. In other words, you can get together with God at the tabernacle. That was the purpose. And so there was an order for this worship. And everything in Leviticus was concerned with the maintenance of the true relation to God. You see, when you come to the Lord, that's not the end of it. This is the application for us today. When you come to Christ, you receive Him as your Lord and your Savior. That's not it. That's not the end of the story. Certainly, as far as your salvation is concerned, that's it. It's accomplished. It's done. But from that, you live a Christian life. You live in a way that is now to be pleasing unto the Lord compared to what it was before you were saved. And your life as a Christian, reading the Bible, praying, being in the house of God, being taught the Scriptures, you know what that has to do with the maintenance of your relationship with God? That's what you're doing. You're maintaining a relationship with the Lord. And things start to go wrong when you stop maintaining that relationship. That's how people backslide. That's how they get away from God. And they miss the odd service, and then they miss more than one or two services a month, and then all of a sudden they don't come to church at all. And instead of reading their Bible every day, it's just every so often, every once in a while, and then they stop reading it altogether. And before you know it, they don't have a walk with God anymore. They're backslidden. They're out there on the mountainside, as it were, far from the shepherd. They can hardly hear his voice. Why? Because they have not maintained their relationship with the Lord. Now, once again, when we look at the order of worship in Leviticus, the key word is holiness. Look at chapter 10 of Leviticus. And because of the size of these books, we're not able to just expound everything within them. Uh, that would take far too long. And I know you'd want us to deal with some other parts of Scripture. But we're picking things out to give you the flavor, the entire overview of these books. And in chapter 10 of Leviticus, we have again this emphasis where the Lord says, and it's in the context of something, so we better read here in verse number 1 of Leviticus chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. In other words, they, they were conducting worship that God said was not to be done. He had not commanded them to do this. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, 
this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. In other words, I will be set apart in them that come near to me. And notice, and Aaron held his peace. Aaron's heart must have been breaking there because these were his sons. But such was his regard for God and his holiness that he made no complaint. He held his peace. See, God is holy. And there's no other book in scripture, let me tell you, that has so many lessons on access to God and worship. In Psalm 65 and verse number 4, the psalmist said, Psalm 65 and verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Thy holy temple. The psalmist is speaking here about worship. And as you read Leviticus, you'll find that the terms offering and sacrifice occur over 91 times. The word clean and its cognates and its contrasts are found some 186 times. Clean, unclean. And as I've pointed out previously, it should be read along with Hebrews in the New Testament because it explains so much of what is found in Leviticus. And I would urge you to do that. It's sometimes, for God's people, tough going to read through something like Leviticus. And you're reading through and you think, well, what does that mean? Well, just keep reading and ask the Lord to speak to you. Ask the Lord to help you to understand it. And then go to Hebrews and try to read back from Hebrews what you see in Leviticus. Particularly in relation to the Day of Atonement. It's amazing. But in Leviticus, and we're talking about the message of it and the order of worship, the following truths are, are symbolized and emphasized. And you can make a list of these if you want to. The first truth is the great problem. And it's the great problem of men and women in every age, including our own. And it's the problem of sin. The book of Leviticus points up that problem. Sin. If there was no sin, there would be no problem. But that is the problem. The great problem is sin. However, thank God in the second place, there's, there's the great provision for that problem. Sacrifice. There is an answer to the problem of sin. What is it? Sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. Isn't that true today in the gospel? What is the answer to sinful man's need? It's Christ. As one of our pastors, who's since gone to heaven, wrote years ago a booklet, it was entitled, Christ is the Answer. Christ is the answer. He is the provision, the sacrifice, the only sacrifice for sin. And of course, in the third place, Leviticus talks about the great power, priesthood. And when we apply this to the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is the antitype of which 
the priests and the high priest were the types. The great power is in the priesthood of Christ. He is our great high priest. He is our sacrifice, but is also our priest. Then there's the great plan. And the great plan of God that's seen in Leviticus is really in chapter 16, the day of atonement. What the Hebrews call Yom Kippur. The day when the priests would take two different lambs, two different kids. With one, he would kill it, shed its blood, put it in a basin and take it inside the veil to the mercy seat. He would sprinkle it before and upon the mercy seat as a sacrifice for sin. The other animal, he would place his hand upon its head. It was a live goat called the Azazel in Hebrew. And as the people would gather around the congregation, the priest would put his hands on the head of that animal that was living. And he would symbolically transfer their sins and his to the head of that animal. He would confess over it their sins and trespasses, their transgressions and their iniquities. And then there would be a fit man who would take that tethered goat out into the wilderness, way out into a place not inhabited. And he would untether that goat and let it go. You imagine that poor frightened animal out there in the middle of the wilderness, far from everyone and everything. That was the other aspect of the sin offering which speaks to us of Christ being banished, being abandoned by God with all of our sins upon him. Removing those sins far out of sight into the wilderness, never to be remembered against us anymore. That's God's great plan. That's his plan of salvation, the day of atonement. Of course you have then the great possibility As a result of this plan, what is that? It's access to God. You can come to God because atonement has been made. And there's the great principle in Leviticus. I've kept on emphasizing it. I emphasize it again. The great principle is holiness. Being sanctified. And there's the great privilege. God's presence. And ultimately... That's what we're going to enjoy, not just here in this life as we commune with the Lord, but in a perfect sense when we get to heaven. God's presence. It was Samuel Rutherford who said, Christ is heaven and heaven is Christ. Because where Christ is, it's heaven there. And friends, that's what it's all about. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. The message of Leviticus is foundational to the entire emphasis of the whole Bible. Access to God and fellowship with God are essential to life. The problem with us is that in our sin, when we're born into into this world, We are banished from God's presence. We're not in fellowship with God. We're not in fellowship with God. Our sins come between Him and us. And we can only have access to God. We can only have communion and fellowship with Him as we have Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Access to God, fellowship with God. 
are only possessed on the ground of redemption. And we looked at the book of Exodus in this regard, in chapter 5 of Exodus and verse 1. It says that afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that in order that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. That's what it was all about. He wanted them to be let go so that they could meet with God. That's what the Exodus was. It was the way out. They were delivered by blood, by sacrifice, by the Lamb. And aren't we delivered through the sacrifice and priesthood of Christ? We are. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks about this. It gives you the whole Levitical picture in that chapter. It actually tells you there in Hebrews 10 and verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's talking about what happened in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. They would bring the daily offerings. They would kill the morning and evening sacrifice. He says, but this man, that's Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 14 says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. What a wonderful truth this is. And he goes on to speak about it. The result of it. Verse 17 of Hebrews 10. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Where remission of these sins is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. See, this is tabernacle language. This is like the Day of Atonement, but he's spiritualizing it. And having an high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is talking about what happened on the Day of Atonement. But it's actually a picture of what Christ has done for us. And holiness is the result of this in God's people. See, God's order has to be preserved. You can't have acceptance with God without a sacrifice. You can't live a holy life without having been made clean by the sacrifice. And as Leviticus follows Exodus, so communion Holiness and worship must follow pardon. That's why I say it's not just about believing on the Lord and then that's it. When you believe on Christ, you repent of your sins and come to Him, there follows then a life of communion and fellowship with God. Something that has to be maintained. Holiness and worship must follow pardon. One man said, an unpardoned rebel cannot have access to the king's favor. Leviticus therefore emphasizes the necessity. It teaches the possibility. It provides for the reality. And it gives the certainty of the completeness of holiness. Let me repeat that. 
Leviticus emphasizes the necessity. It teaches the possibility. It provides for the reality. And it gives the certainty of the completeness of holiness. When the Apostle Paul, again using somewhat Levitical language in 2 Corinthians 6, said, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That's the sort of idea that you have in Leviticus, not touching the unclean thing and being defiled. He says, I will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. But look at the next verse. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, what promises? I will receive you. I will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, you have to work at your Christian life. You have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. It's like when people talk about salvation, there used to be a radio host who used to talk about when I became saved. I used to think, what do you mean? Like, was, is that like a frog turning into a prince? When you became saved? What do you mean? Instead of saying, when the Lord saved me, when I came to the Lord, when I received the Lord, when I trusted the Lord, all of which are used in Scripture, by the way. Paul talked about those who were in Christ before me, who trusted in Christ. Are those who first trusted in Christ. There's a necessity for us to believe on Christ. There's a necessity for us to trust in Christ, to receive His salvation. And then as we live in Christ, we walk with Him, we work at our Christian lives. Frankly, your Bible is not going to float down on a magic carpet from your shelf into your lap. The page is not going to magically open and your eyes then magically just be turned toward that scripture. It's something you have to actually do. Get up, lift that Bible from off the shelf and open it and read it. You have to work at your Christian life. Prayer happens as you do it. Lord, teach us to pray. Well, how do I pray? Well, learn to pray. Do it. Talk to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Say, so, well, I don't know what words to use. You'll find words. You'll find the words. The Lord will give you the words. And as you read through your scriptures, you'll find words. I'll tell you a good practice for Christians would be to take a psalm. Just take a psalm. Any psalm. And read through it and think about the things that suggest to your mind. And you can use those things in prayer. Turn your Bible into prayers. Like the psalmist, for example, makes requests to the Lord all the time. All the time he does it. Psalm 105, for an example, just picking this out. Psalm 105, see how it begins? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Stop right there. Give thanks unto the Lord. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that I was able to get out of bed this morning. Thank you, Lord, that I may not be 100% healthy, but I'm as healthy 
as you have allowed me to be, and am more healthy than some poor souls, and give thanks to the Lord for the natural mercies that you have in life. And that'll take you a long time when you start enumerating the blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one. It'll surprise you what the Lord has done. Don't think about what you haven't got. Think about what you have got. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Thank Him for His mercy. Thank Him for His salvation. You could camp out there for a long time. You wouldn't even have to go on down through the psalm for very long. You've already spent quite a bit of time just giving thanks unto the Lord. And then it says, call upon His name. And then it says, make known His deeds among the people. Lord, help me to witness to somebody today. You can turn that into a prayer. Am I making known his deeds among the people? Do people know that I'm a Christian? Verse 2, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Am I doing that? Am I remembering his marvelous works that he hath done? Verse 5. So many things that are suggested to us that we can make matters of prayer. Turn your Bible into a prayer sheet. Walk with God. Learn to live for the Lord. The Christian life is exactly that. It's a life to be lived. May the Lord help us to be a holy people. May the Lord help us to follow the order of worship as it is set forth for us in the Holy Scripture. I trust the Lord will bless this message to each of our hearts.